listening to the Gods the Ghost Volleyball Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bemke. Our podcast today features part one of our interview with Jeff Jordan. Jeff played collegiately for the illustrious Pepperdine Waves men's indoor program, where he earned All-American honors in 1975. When it comes to his beach career, he competed in open tournaments at the professional level from 1974 through 1981 and earned a second place finish in 1977 at Capitola Beach for the Northern California Beach Championships. Outside of that, he also competed in the six-man tournament at Manhattan Beach where he won three titles alongside of his teammates as well as serving as captain and putting the team together. Outside of his playing career, Jeff also contributed to the sport as a referee at the Manhattan Six-Man Tournament for multiple decades, and he also was a referee on the AVP Tour during its heyday. In addition to that, he also was a successful coach, including two assistant coach stints for two of the most successful programs in the history of California, Bill Ashen's Laguna Beach High School Artists, and also Mike Cook's Miracosta Mustangs. Let's get started with Jeff Jordan, part one. We are speaking with Jeff Jordan today. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to talk with me here on a Sunday over uh, Labor Day. <laughs> and uh, in, the heat, in the heat wave here. Yeah, I saw that on the news. You guys are, uh, <laughs> you better have air conditioning. Not here. A lot of people don't have it out here because we got the ocean breeze. It's only once in a while. But today's one of them. That is for sure. It looks like it. So, Jeff, tell us about your background, where you grew up, and how you got involved with the uh, great game of volleyball. The great game of volleyball. It is an interesting one, sort of, uh, like a lot of people. I mean, I grew up in the beach towns. So I was really lucky. Hermosa really Hermosa Beach mostly my youth and baseball was my main deal really that baseball is my first love and you know I was a big time player when I was young and I got hurt my senior year in high school after I had some full ride offers but everything fell apart because I couldn't play and broke my wrist literally the day before the season was going to start oh, literally Any, yeah it's just unbelievable and Anyway, that, and I, went to, I was at Miracosta, of course, Pure Avenue Junior High, and then Miracosta, and I went to Irvine, UC Irvine, to play basketball. Basketball was the second sport at that time. I had just started playing a little volleyball like during the summer, but the basketball team at Irvine was so good, 
and I got recruited, but anyway, don't make it too long. But the team turned out to be 22 wins and two losses, so I really couldn't complain much about not playing. Right. And since I, yeah, since I wasn't playing much, I then I, I was in a volleyball class at Irvine. I remember that my freshman year, and this guy named Dave Tomchek. Let's drop a name. Maybe Dave will see this. Dave Tomchek was a really nice guy. UC Irvine just had a uh, club team at that time. And he saw, I was like by far the best guy in the class, you know, but that's not saying a lot. But anyway, he saw me, knew that he could see that, you know, I could at least play. And so he grabbed me one day. He says, hey, why don't you come practice with us and we could use another guy. And so I did. And so I got on that uh, Irvine club team that freshman year. And, you know, we were like a single A thing indoors. And played baseball again at Irvine that year and the next year, which was showing some signs. Anyway, the big deal happened in Manhattan as a six-man, which is like probably my favorite tournament, well, no question, my favorite tournament, thing I've had most success at. And I was playing there, and the coaches at Pepperdine came down to watch Ted Dodd, who was on my team, who was the best player in high school in the entire country that year at Miracosta. And Harlan Cohen and Bert DeGroote came down to watch, or Harlan did, came down to watch Ted. And it was like a week or two later, I'm waiting to go back to Irvine. Ted calls me on the phone and says, hey, you want a free ride to Pepperdine? And I, you know, well, okay. You know, so that was a huge moment in my life. And that was the big thing that changed. You know, it gave me the opportunity to go to Pepperdine and redshirt a year so I could practice and learn everything. And by that time, I was a pretty good player anyway. And so we had the redshirt year at Pepperdine, and that was the first year that Malibu opened, so it was a beautiful, you know, it was just great to be up there in that beautiful place. And and then my junior, senior year at Pepperdine, I was, you know, all uh, American and all that stuff. And that's how the indoor got going. And the same time the beach program, you know, beach playing started. Playing always at Marine Street, the Marine, Marine Street guy, and Mike Cook was my, Mike Cook was like what Tom Jack did in Irvine indoors. Mike Cook grabbed me off the yellow court one day at Marine Street. Anybody that knows Marine Street knows that's the workup court to the orange, famous orange court. Anyway, he grabbed me off the yellow court. He says, hey, you want to play up here? My partner's got to live. I said, okay. <laughs> twist my arm. Twist my arm. Twist my arm. I'm scared to death anyway. So that started a long uh, friendship with Mike Cook, which really helped a lot. And then. Playing down there with Leonard Armato, he's my probably, and Kurt Donaldson were probably my most often partners in the early days. And uh, actually, the first tournament I won was an A tournament at Marine Street, which was, God, that was a great day. That Sunday was just a great day. Wayne Smith, let's put a name out there, another one. He was Wayne Smith, man, this blonde haired, and he was a genius guy. This guy was a mathematician at Irvine or somewhere. I don't know, man. He was a really interesting character. And uh, he was a great player, kind of smaller, but he could really set. And I was a big bomber, so nobody served me. I just set him all weekend long. You know, we just destroyed everybody. It was a great day on Sunday. That was kind of my first tournament win on the beach. And then, you know, just progressing from there. Uh, I don't think you want me to go my whole life story here. That's kind of how it all started for me. Was really those two guys were real important, Cook and uh, a guy named Dave Tomchek. Yeah. Yeah, and then so. was was Cook coaching at Miracosta at that time, or was no, that still coming up? I don't think he. I don't. I'm not sure. I don't think so. But he he was he must have been teaching there. You know, he taught. He still teaches there actually. 
yeah, he teaches. I th- I don't want to say. I'm not sure. I think I know he teaches Latin. If he still teaches, of course. Right now with the damn pandemic, I don't know what he's doing. But I know a year <laughs> ago he was. Uh, um, what were we saying? Uh, yeah, Cook. Anyway, Cook was. Uh, uh, was at Miracosa. I don't know exactly when he started coaching, though. Um, but I stayed close with him for years and years. Still do. I still send him a Christmas card. So, <laughs> so those Manhattan uh, six-man tournaments at the beach, I, I had the pleasure of seeing a couple of them when I lived out there for the short time that I did, and I was completely blown away by it. Um, what was it like in the era that you played and? Who were some of the, the the guys that you played against, and uh, any fun classic stories from that tournament oh, well, that you the, remember? I mean, the six man is is my cup of I don't want to say cup of tea. I, it's my favorite thing. I mean, when I was to, to illustrate that, when I was referee, I was one of the main referees for the AVP tour from about oh, basically eighty eight to two thousand approximately. And the first thing I would do every year when Matt, we would have a meeting and we would get the rules and go through what to do and how to do everything. Matt Gage, uh, he, he led the referees. Anyway, when he did that, this is an illustration, I would, get the, I would get the schedule from him. I was the first one every year. I would do it every year. And the one thing, one weekend that I would block out, I would call Manhattan or call Charlie Sakely and ask him, when's the tournament this year? This is like in March or something, right, when they make the schedule or February. Find out when it was, and I would block out that weekend. Because <laughs> there's no way I was doing anything. There's no way I was going anywhere except in Manhattan playing the six-man. And so we started, and, you know, we're trying to figure that out. If anybody has, if anybody sees this, if anybody knows for absolute sure whether first year of, of Max Liquor, which was our first team, was 71 or 72, I would love to know because it makes a big difference because I'm working on my 49th straight year of being involved in that tournament and trying to get to the this year got thrown out. So anyway, we started in 71 or two with uh, Ted Dodd was a Marine Street boy. He was in high school at the time. And Mike Dodd, believe it or not, he was only like 13 or something, but we used him in the front row. This is way early in his life. And I put the teams together with Leonard, the first couple teams, Leonard Armato, the first couple teams, and we did really well. You know, for us, just making it to Sunday was huge the first year. We beat Bob Jackson was playing on Orville and Wilbur's, and we beat them a game on Saturday to get into the thing on Sunday, which was, for us, was just gigantic. And then we went like a second round, I think, on the second year and a third round, and the fourth year, the third or fourth year, as I say, I'm not sure, we took a second, and oh there is a story and the fifth year we won it in 76 so we progressed really quickly and all those teams you know I put them all together and Leonard and I got the sponsors and we went from Western Exterminator for a couple years after Max Liquor which was the liquor store right there at Marine Street and uh, they were nice enough to sponsor us for a couple years we had girls down there at Marine Street who made us who made us shorts (laughs) we got actually good we got yeah we actually bought material, and then these, oh, God, what was her name? Oh, I'm sorry, dear, you were so good to us. There was this gal, oh, well, I can't remember her name, but anyway, she was the leader of that brigade that made our shorts. 
Anyway, one of the, I'll tell you, one of the stories in the early days for me was, uh, this was unbelievable. It was, I think the year we took second, I'm not sure if it was uh, like 74 or five, but the point was we got, we were, we were a pretty good team at this point. So I think it was 75, but it could have been 75. Anyway, we were a solid team. No, we were somebody to be feared. I mean, Ted was really good by then. Mike Dodd was, you know, more like 16 or 17 at that point. And Kurt Donaldson was setting, Chuck Wright was setting, and I was hitting outside, Leonard was hitting outside. I kind of coached him and trying to get him because he was a great back row player, but he didn't play much six-man. Anyway, we got into the semis on Sunday, and I'm telling you, uh, there was some of the all-time great guys. There was a team of Santa Monica older guys, and this is when Wilt was playing. They had uh, Lang and Selznick, they had Wilt, they had Raffaro, they had Beck, I think, and, you know, that's about enough right there. I can't remember everybody, <laughs> for sure. But, <laughs> that's oh, quite oh, the Butch, list. Oh, oh, Butch May, Butch May. All these guys, that were they were like the best players on the beach the, like five years earlier, and they were still, these guys, you know, this was a really good team, and they had Wilt, which added a whole other thing to it, and Wilt, you know, he's out there you know, bad mouth and all us kids, all these guys, you know, Lang and Selznick, you know, they're not going to give us a break. In warm-ups, they're hitting at us, they're yelling at us, just giving us all kinds of shit. It was unbelievable. But the thing, the thing is, it was on, you know, this was, the, I think, the semis on Sunday, so there's only like two matches going, and because all those guys, and Wilt, of course, all the crowd gravitated to wherever Wilt played that first year or two, especially. And so there was a pretty big crowd, or even though that was like 10 in the morning on Sunday or 11, whatever it was, there was a pretty, there was two or 300 people around that court. And the thing is, in warm-ups, everybody were kind of to see Will and the older great names, but they were being such assholes. <laughs> they were so, you know, you know, we all know how Lane can be, and Will was a big talker. They were just really being rotten, and we were young. Don't forget. So everybody kind of wanted us. They wanted to see them, but they wanted to root for us. And I'm telling you, I will never forget this as long as I live. So anyway, the whole crowd, the whole crowd starts booing these guys because they were being, they were this loud and rude. They were just being so bad. So everybody gravitated to our side. And I am not kidding. We're playing two out of three to 11 in those days. And I'm telling you, the first ball, I don't, we served the ball. We had served. And I was blocking the right side, and Mike Dodd was blocking the middle. And, of course, they go, they went to, you know, whenever they got a good pass, they set Wilt on the left side because that's the only thing he could do. And they set Wilt on the left side, and I'm telling you, he went up, blasted as hard as he could. <laughs> and we blocked it so freaking clean and so straight down. Everybody out there was just going, whoa, and wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't supposed to happen. And the whole crowd, again, you got to understand, these guys were being such jerks that everybody was screaming, yay, you know, for us. For the young and, kids. You know, I, it's unbelievable. That's not the extent of it. We served again and did the exact same thing, and I'm not making this up. They said, well, again, and we blocked him straight down again. And then, I, you know, the game went on, and we ended up beating them, I think, in three games. But the whole crowd, everybody was just, I mean, those guys were just, walking away with their tails between their legs by the end of the day or the end of the, the end of the match and it was one to remember because just of the situation you know the guys these guys are the, the legends at the time and 
but they were just being such dicks. And <laughs> so the whole crowd was just, everybody was, was just excited for us. Plus, again, we were just kids, you know, we were good, but we were all pretty much young, like single-A, double-A players, and put together a good, anyway, it was a big day. And then we went on and got second that, in that tournament, which was a huge finish. And the following year, I think it was the following year, we won it for the first time in 76. So that that's a really good one. Uh, there's, you know, I've got so many six-man. But in the early days, that's the one that stands out. And then, of course, 76 when we won it all, which was, you know, that's a big step to win the six-man, boy. You can we, Was it the same group, uh, group of players it for the most pretty part? Much, pretty, yeah, pretty much the same group of guys. Uh-huh. Exactly. As a matter of fact, I no, I take it back. I but it, <laughs> I picked up this guy. You probably never heard of him, named Bob Clem. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah Bob the, Clem. That, the, the 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 king the chart house. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, he was working at the chart house at the time. I'm pretty sure. And uh, so Bob gave us a setter that could go across the front row. Oh yeah, Chuck Wright. He had set for us before that. He was a short guy, although he was an excellent setter. So he was still on the team, but Bob then was one of the setters with Kurt Donaldson, and that did. And oh, I'm sorry, Paul Sunderland too. Paul Sunderland I got from Loyola, and Paul, you know, went on to the national team like a year or two later. So Paul was getting really good at that time. As a matter of fact, he would he was probably our MVP. I always used to give an MVP to somebody on my team after the six man, and Paul would have got it. He got on fire in the. Uh, in the finals he really did he was middle blocking for us and he was just putting everything away of course we all did we all played well we beat chris marlowe's team actually in the in the finals uh chuck steakhouse i think it was um wherever marlowe was working marlowe actually <laughs> marlowe i can't even play and you know chris and i played together later and had a really good finish at the world championships in 81 we got a seventh Anyway, and I, I have nothing against, you know, Chris and I are pretty friendly. I'm not saying that. But on that afternoon, I'll never forget, 76, okay, we're going to the finals against Marlowe's team. And we guys had to go to work. And, you know, but, you know, you know this in the six-man. If you got work at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, you better get it canceled. So Marlowe comes up to me. And he'd already went to Sake, Charlie Sakely and Sakely said, look, if you can get Jeff to agree with it, you can, you can do it. But Marlowe wanted me to move the finals up before the third place game so that this guy could play. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going, oh, yeah, Chris. Yeah, you do that for me, I'm sure. <laughs> right, you know, was, yeah. Uh, oh, Jesus Christ, unbelievable. And then you know what happened? The guy didn't go. He didn't leave anyway. I forget his, who, which guy it was, but that was hilarious. Yeah, so not only did he lose the final, he also lost his job. <laughs> Because he because he called in for yeah, the tenth anyway, time yeah. that month probably after a few rough nights. Yeah, yeah. Marlo, you know what? Though leading on to another story on that that's unbelievable. When you and I have talked about Eric Macias before, and Eric Macias is is a legend in his own right in a way because Eric did some crazy stuff. But and I believe he killed himself if I'm not mistaken. I believe he committed suicide. Not, I think he, uh, yeah, I think I read that he might have committed a murder, and then uh, somehow, some I don't know. I, I, I well, there was something I, I know. Yeah, it was something not, shady, and uh, yeah, 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 it was. Eric and well, yeah, Eric was just a character. He was a little off, 
and he was very capable. He's a big guy. He was like 6'5", but he moved pretty well. But he was just a little off, and he was just always kind of talking to himself or arguing with somebody, and, you know, he could put in good performance. Anyway, here's the point. I believe it was seven, that year later or two years later, and Marlow had another team, and, and the thing is, it was a similar team to that team that took second, but the, the interesting thing is they were short a guy, and Macias showed up. Sometimes the six man, you can pick up people on Saturday morning. That's a lot of times that happens. Right. So Marlowe picks up Eric Macias on Saturday morning because they're just short a guy. I mean, Eric's a decent pickup. He's a, he was a good player, and he was fairly big, but he wasn't like some big star. Okay. So we get to the finals, and we're here against Marlowe again. And, but he's got Eric Macias and a similar team to the other one. And I am telling you, we had, this is 70, must have been 77, maybe eight. But I had, here's how good my team was. Pat Boyer, who's about 6'8 from indoors, who's a great player. And Skip Allen was on my team. Bob Clem was on it again. And me, and I think Kurt was the other setter still. And I can't remember the other, another really good middle blocker. Uh, anyway, so the fun, to tell you how good we were, we were playing our first round game on Saturday. And OB, Steve Obradovich, he comes walking down the stairs at Manhattan because they didn't play that early. And he takes a look at my team. He says, JJ, what the hell, man? <laughs> we, we, nobody else even has a chance out here. I mean, he literally said that. And that's how good we were. So we get to the finals, and it was basically a foregone conclusion. I mean, we were the best team by a mile in this tournament, except the all-time in the history of his life, Eric Macias had the greatest match of his life in the finals against us. And I am telling you, Eric Macias must have hit 30 balls and put away 25 of them and didn't get blocked down once, I swear. He must have blocked down 10 balls. He must have dug 10 or 15 straight down drills. You know, he was, and then he started serving tough and he got a couple of aces on serving. Everybody was just going, there was literally the crowd, Marlowe got everybody going, Eric, Eric, Big E, Big E, every, and you know, Macias hears that, he just starts going nuts because he, he would react to anything. And I'm telling you, that is the Eric Macias six-man. He deserves the entire He He single-handedly beat one of the best teams that my team that year was one of the best teams ever played. I'm not kidding you. And he single-handedly destroyed us. I, I, I'll never in my life forget it. Anyway, there's another Marlowe was on the other side of that one. So. He, uh, staying on the subject of uh, Macias, I heard uh, at one of those tournaments i'm not sure if it was a six man or something he uh hauled off and and punched somebody yeah. and knocked knocked uh i don't know i, I think he did some severe yeah. damage which i never liked to hear going under the net i heard i wasn't there either but i remember that happening he he knocked somebody that's what i mean eric was a little a little bit off he, he could go a little crazy although he's a really friendly guy he's pretty soft-spoken but he would he would really lose it at times and go kind of nuts <laughs> that's why that's why everybody was just rooting for him because you know he'd been kind of the outside guy forever and then in this one match he just anyway yeah he did he hauled off and hit somebody i don't remember who that was 
but it was uh, it was somebody we all knew. It was one of the main players, as I recall. Right. Anyway. Now, uh, it, when I was at the six man, you know, everyone was having a, a, a decent time with a beer or two here and there, oh, I yeah. guess. So oh, yeah. uh, it, was it also kind of like a war of attrition, like who could, you know, control you know, their uh, party exactly uh, intuition uh, and then still play exactly well? You're, I know exactly what you're saying, and it's a huge part of the history of the six man, of the history of of exactly what you're saying, who can mess around on Saturday and get their shit together on Sunday, you know? And now it's a big deal because basically because of that, it ended the it ended the tournament for a, wait, no, I don't think we ever, did we cancel? No, it didn't get canceled. They moved it to the oh. middle of the week, I think, at yeah. some point yeah. because they yeah. hitting a lot of riffraff in there from uh, that heard about it and said, hey, let's all go up there and party yeah. and then they kind of ruined it for everyone is what it, it sounded ruined like it for everybody we had to go in the middle of the week for i think a year or two and then now we've settled on friday saturday which is seemingly kind of working i at least we get a weekend day and it's always the first day that's that's all the problems and they've got it all fenced off now and all this stuff but anyway to your question in the earlier days this isn't that long ago this is only like about eight ten years ago where all the changes happened Anyway, in the 70s when I was starting to play, it was the same story, though. It was just a little lower level. But in the 80s and 90s, it really started getting out of control on Saturdays. And, I mean, guys were just so blithering drunk. I don't know how. Some guys are able to get drunk and play. I don't know how they do it. Like Hooper. Hooper could go out all night long on no sleep, I heard. And uh, and he'd play the next day like he was fresh as a daisy. Yeah, that's different, though. The hungover thing is different. I mean, actually, when you're drinking. I don't know how people do it. You know, Mingus and Lee, they used to drink beers with their lunch every every tournament. Even on, you know, the Sunday. I mean, it was just one beer, I think. But, I mean, so they, and Mike Cook used to do that. And I played with Mike, you know, several times. And he would have a beer in the middle of the day. And it would sort of calm him down a little bit, he said. But for me, I have one beer, man. I I can't. And I'm not like all drunk. I'm not saying I'm a cheap drunk. I'm not. But but it just, <laughs> I, I can't jump. I can't move very fast. It just affects me really quickly. But some guys can. Anyway, it got so out of hand, though. Um, you know, guys are spitting at you. I mean, you know, like where you're drunk. T- I don't mean spitting on purpose. But right. where they're yelling at you and there's spit coming. I mean, it's had it happen a million times. And it just really got out of control. But the thing was that what it leads to is the whole idea of Saturday, because everybody's Saturday is just a completely different day. The main teams are going to make it to Sunday either way, no matter what. And the lesser teams, there's no way they're going to make it. There's only a few teams in each that are on the bubble kind of thing. And so it doesn't really matter on the finish. But you'd have such a different attitude for some teams would just get together, get plowed on Saturday, and then try to make it on Sunday, whereas other teams were pretty serious about it. I mean, we were kind of pretty serious about it, although we would maybe drew some drinking towards the end of the day on Saturday, but we wanted to, to, I wanted to organize things and get the team playing well, and I think that's one of the keys to the success I've had, is that I organized stuff. We even had practices. For a, for a lot of the teams, I'd get them together one day, the week of the tournament, just so we get our positioning down and everybody knew where they'd go. And 
and it did. It helped quite a bit. I mean, there was not all those questions on Saturday, and then we could kind of. Anyway, so a big, you know, one of the greatest losses on that, and I don't mean to look. Hey, if if this is if you want to if this is what you want to do and you enjoy it, then I'm not making any judgments. But 12th Street, you know, they're you know Pat Ivy and a lot of Miracosa got both Ivies, Pat and Brad Ivy, Brian, uh, Brian Ivy, Brian. I'm sorry. Uh, and I'm not, there's has different guys, and some of them were later than me. Uh, oh, the little guy that jumps out of the, with the long hair, oh, what's his name? Oh, shoot. He's a well-known guy for a while. Anyway, there was about, in the 90s, I believe, when they started playing in that tournament, uh, and they were one of the best teams, and it, it happened like two or three, two years in a row, where they were so plowed on Saturday night, and then a couple guys didn't show up on time. I mean, they really had tournament aspirations, and they should have. They were one of the best teams for sure. And a couple of times on Sunday, a couple guys weren't there because, I mean, literally they were just too shit-faced or they were literally <laughs> hungover or they were still drinking. And I remember this one year, they were going to win the tournament hands down, and the team from the Valley... I think I think uh, Marvin was coaching him. I think Marvin Hall. Oh, uh, yeah, the dancing great, referee. Great, great Love referee, that guy. Marvin Hall, one of my one of my cohorts in the referees. One of my yeah. Referees. Just don't sleep with the guy. I don't mean sexually. I mean just don't be in the room. Nobody snores louder than Mar- <laughs> Marvin Hall. The, Marvin the walls were. You thought the Northridge oh, earthquake was happening I, everywhere I, when you slept you, in Marvin the room Hall, with him, the huh? The walls are just. The walls are booming. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I love Marvin, no, we all love Marvin. There's no doubt about it. Oh, He's even as a fan at the AVP events when I was a kid at Bradford, you know, between plays when he'd start dancing and you'd hear he Sam Sam Lagana on that mic, the mic, you yeah. know, as the MCV MC, you know, those two yeah. guys were as big a part of the sport to to me as a kid yeah. growing yeah. up. Well, in Marvin, the fans Marvin, is uh, the players. Yeah, Marvin had a following everywhere we went. There was by that. By about the fourth year, there would be people yelling for Marvin to dance <laughs> all over the place. It was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he had a team. I forget if he played because Marvin actually was a real good setter. I mean, he didn't move much, but you know, he was a real good setter. I don't know if he played or not, but he—I know he put the team together. A bunch of like six, seven guys from the valley. They were huge, and I didn't know the guys back then. Later, and they beat Twelfth Street in a finals that. There's no way they sh- anyway. It, it's that thing of what you do on Saturday or the first day compared to the second day is is a big part of the, you know how you maneuver in the six man because it's affected a lot of teams. So luckily, we I think they finally up. got their first win in the six man a, a handful a couple of years ago. So um, I don't think 12th Street has ever won it. I think they did. That's that team with all right. yeah, all those all those guys that are, are good buddies and Chris Brown was on it and um yeah. and uh and I think they had David McKenzie and Brandon Talia Farrell uh uh playing on it and Swadick and that, right. that whole Miracosta grew and Ivy and whatnot. So I think they yeah, finally I did did uh, hold it together and have an epic final. I saw the pictures and it looked like they had a, they they figured it out and then they had an even more epic uh, after party. <laughs> I'm sure they after that. all those years of uh, coming close and then they finally closed oh, yeah. the deal. But you know, yeah, I that was, that's just based off of what I saw pictures. It, it looked like it would have been one hell of a weekend for them. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, maybe they did. Uh, I'm not absolutely sure. Anyway, well, that's something. Somebody email you or something. Tell me if 12th Street won one. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm positive that they did. Uh, I, I'm, right. I'm sure of it uh, on that one. So It may be that a couple of the guys that were on that team played with the different you know, team or something. I'm not. Did you see? Did you see Brian Ivy on it? Yep, yep. That okay, whole crew. Well, I know on, that whole. Uh, yeah, you know, he's the, there's. On 12th Street. Yep. Oh. Those all that whole. Uh, those all those Mustangs, and then they had a couple other guys on it too. You know, because you have a big, big teams. I don't know how many. Uh, there was a big group of people, but they were the the bulk of it. But from what I heard, Brandon Taliaferro set for him, and he was lights out. And then they had David McKenzie on that team, who's also a, a six-man legend with uh, Magnum. They won it a bunch of years. So they had a pretty... Yeah, st- Magnum is... Magnum, they've won it quite a few times. They've won it through, probably three times. Yeah, uh, yep. I, uh, I watched them play a couple times when I was out there, and they blew my mind. Yeah. But, yeah, gosh, that must have been a fun time. I, I got to say that... Uh, if for anyone that hasn't been uh, witnessed that in person, that it's like one of the neatest things ever. I remember the first time I happened upon it. It was like in 2002 when I was living there, and I just I lived up uh, off of Robertson and Burton Way, and I drove down on a Saturday morning to just go hang out at Manhattan and Hermosa. And uh, I couldn't believe my eyes. I felt like I just walked into an oasis. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, I park up the street, yeah, and all of like a sudden I see peak. all these girls dressed like Princess Leia, and they're handing oh, yeah. out Jello shots. And I'm like, what yeah, the hell yeah, is this? Am yeah. I dreaming? And uh, that was just the beginning. Uh, the next two days, I that was the neatest thing I've ever experienced. That's what I mean. It's a one of a kind. It's the only one in the world. I'll bet money. And the, you got to remember. On Saturday, or the first day, it's the biggest party in the friggin' South Bay. And on the second day, it's the best volleyball you'll ever... It's the, it's the best six-man volleyball on the beach you'll ever see. I, I, maybe somewhere else in the world, obviously we don't know, but I can't believe somewhere else in the world would have that many people... Oh, from every era. I mean, I saw Karch there. I saw Sinjin and those guys in the Legends. And then I saw the young up-and-coming, you know, teenage kids, all the girls. And then that Team Fletch that had uh, uh, Geeter McGee on the on the bullhorn for him, And they had the funniest damn chats I could ever come up with. Like, they'd be playing the Legends and they'd be beating them. But the Legends would have a, a pretty big play against them. And then they'd all start chanting, Still pretty good. Still pretty good. You know, just little stuff that yeah, was just they, like they, you couldn't stop laughing and everyone was having the best time. It was it yeah, was the coolest thing big, ever. They've had, a big, they've had a big impact on it. The Fletch teams, they, they put on the Laker jerseys. Yeah, or Team Guzzle. Yeah, I don't know if they've changed their name. But, yeah. And they've won, it, they've won it several times too. Uh, yeah, Lee Legrand uh, would be pike blocking out there. Lee and Legrand, Matt Unger, I think, setting the table. He was he a Pepperdine guy. He played with Tom Sorensen, who's a Wisconsin guy at your uh, with Chip McCaw, Ian Clark, and those guys, and won the title, um, uh, a ch- championship at uh, at Penn State, and Dane Blanton, and everyone. That's uh, your alumni there. Yeah. Uh, at uh, Pepperdine, yeah. Lee played Lee the first time Lee played in the tournament. He played with me, and we got a. Uh, it was in the late 80s I believe and he played with us and we got a second or third that year he just came in we actually got him at the last minute 
And then he was going to play with us the following year, uh, but a lot of Santa Monica guys, they drug him away from me. But he all, <laughs> I couldn't quite hold on to him. But I Those gave, sons of guns. That his start there was on our team. The first year, the first year, anything. I don't think he had played before. But he's a heck, he's still a, a heck of a player. He still plays the front row for Fletch. He did last year, or the year before, not this year. Yeah, anyway, he, uh... Um, the thing you good. just brought up, the, the whole thing, that's right, we didn't even mention. I mean, almost every team dresses up. That's another thing if you haven't, if this gets to people that haven't ever seen it, it's it's all like a, a thematic affair, and a lot of teams go to a lot of expense, you know, to make uniforms or a funny, or a lot of hilarious stuff, like you're saying, they're all dressed What were some of the players. better ones you saw over the oh, years there, either well, as a competitor think, or as a ref? Thank you. I think you have to give, as far as long running, one of the best ones. I think you got to get the wrestlers, the the WWF or E, whatever it is now. <laughs> the guys, uh, the two trees used to play. Uh, Tom and uh, oh shit, I don't know their names. I I just know Tom, uh, the guy with the blonde hair that does he does Hulk Hogan, and okay. uh, the other tree he doesn't play anymore. We used to call them the trees because they're both about six eight, and. Um, they, uh, the guy that was the ultimate warrior, and he doesn't play anymore. I don't know these guys that well, but he was dressed to the max, man. I mean, they came in, there and what are some, Hulk was, of course, and uh, they had the under- Randy the Macho here. Man they, Savage, I'm sure, and like all the big what? ones. Yeah, the Macho Man, that's what I was trying to think of. They Snapping into a Slim Jim. They brought down wrestling ropes, and so every time they played, they set up the ropes around their side of the court. I mean, they had to they had to put a pole in the ground and hook it to the 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 the, 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 ball, the net pole, and so that they had you know the their own wrestling, wrestling ring right next to the court. What? Their own wrestling ring, miniature wrestling yeah, exactly. ring, right next to the court, huh? Wrestling ring. I don't know. You, they've done that for so many years. I I have to put them up there. I, <laughs> I remember one year there were the there were farmers. They had. Uh, they had uh, overalls on. That was that was one that was pretty. What funny. are you talking about? That's church attire here in Wisconsin, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, we used to all what we we always had uniforms, but I but we usually get, I would always get you know a company. Well, I was with a clothing line in the eighties, uh, the Burmese clothing line. I was the sales manager for that. For, for like eight years, so he's uh, Tony Plowden from Burmese. He would he was sponsoring us for several years, and of course, so all the shorts and shirts and stuff like that we would all get because of him. And then I had some deals with Quicksilver. Rob Bob McKnight was great to me. We had Quicksilver stuff. Anyway, I would usually get some kind of organized thing. It was the people that made up the stuff that was uh, really the funniest. The the girls from. Uh, and the guys, the the Miracosta boys, of course, Kevin Cleary and all the guys that they're now they're good stuff. But for a hundred years they were, uh, oh Jesus! Now I'm spacing out. The the coffee shop right there in Manhattan, and I, I can't believe I can't remember. Oh, that's terrible. Anyway, Kinkos. <laughs> what? Like a Kinkos or something? No, a coffee shop. It's a land. Oh, a coffee, coffee shop. shop. Okay, yeah, like a local right one. Right on the street at the pier there, and. That was the name of the team. They sponsored them for a long time, and now they're good stuff. Anyway, 
but they're the ones. They're one. They're really. They're really the ones that sort of made that a cool thing to do because they went to a lot of trouble in the late seventies. I think it was the Miracosta girls. They didn't play in the tournament at that point. They were cheerleaders for the Miracosta boys, and the girls all had these cheerleading. Yeah, they had pom poms. They had <laughs> skirts and like gold lame that they made, and they all matched. And then the guys. The girls would make outfits for them. They had these just wild shorts that were all kinds of, and they would have dingle balls hanging on the bottom of the shorts, and then they would come in with bathrobes. I mean, they're really the ones that kind of started the, people were dressing up, but but they really took it to another level. And then everybody kind of started thinking, well, wait, what can I do, you know? And then what can I do? Yeah, it's like Halloween in July or the first week in August. Like, let's get going. And it it really built from there. Uh, And that's just another, you know, unique thing about that tournament. And uh, while it looks so crazy and fun on the first day, on the second day, it just gets so serious and such great volleyball. That's what I was just always amazed at and what I just love about that tournament how you have, you know, you just kind of goof around and have a good day the first day, make sure you get in the playoffs, and then you have to be serious, you know, and it's just amazing how, because nobody plays, nobody plays beach six-man. Nobody practices that. So even though they may be a lot of six-man players, if you don't play on the beach, you ain't going to do anything down there. I don't know how many times we just killed, like remember a couple of UCLA teams, or at least guys right after UCLA or SC, and they would put a team together, and, you know, they were really good indoor players. But they didn't play on the beach, and they thought they could come down and just, like, beat people. But they couldn't move in the sand. They didn't jump. Their timing wasn't there. And we would just destroy them. And uh, so it's amazing how in one day of practice you see teams, and that's really what it's about. Because there's usually about five teams that are capable of, I'm talking about the men's side, the women's is, is, is pretty much the same, but it's small on a smaller level. But the men's tournament, there's probably five teams that have a capability that they might win. So what you have to look for is which team gets it together quickest on Sunday. Because again, nobody's played together before, maybe a year before, but, and that starts to hold over with teams that have played together for a while, but there aren't many of those. So it's just how fast and, you know, how well you can run a coordinated offense. And you, some teams tried to do too much, man. The Trim teams tried to run X's and, and shifts and, you know, and threes and shoots, quick shoots. None of that stuff works, man, you, you, because you don't have time to get it perfect, you know. And if, you know, if your timing is off on a four set outside, you just lose the point, and it's just not worth it. So you try to keep a fairly, fairly simple, but try to put in something that you know is as quick as you can, and then see who gets hot and ride them. Wes Welch, Wes Welch was one of the greatest outside hitters I've ever seen. He was on my team for like five years. Right. He was a yeah. He was on on the tour. Yeah, I watched him and Troy Tanner play out together, and they could just, when they were on, they could just destroy teams. That was a very good team, and unfortunately, they should have won San Francisco one year. Oh, yeah, I think Adam Johnson pong blocked them on, like, game point. Oh, Tanner's had the worst luck in those games, man. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I was roughing that. 
I was, I mean, the lines or something. I don't think I was roughing it, but I was in it. I just can't believe they lost that match. Anyway, Wes and the sixth man, he was one of, I used to say this a lot because I had the ability. I, I was one of them. That you, you, that, because you cannot win that tournament without good outside hitters. You cannot do it. You, you don't, like I said, you can't run the middle like all the time like you do indoors. You can't, nobody's got the timing set to do that. No, anyway, it just never works. So you have to have outside hitters. And I'm telling you, when you're playing on the beach, it is hard to put a ball down with a two-man block and six guys playing defense. It is not, it's not like indoors. You do not get up as high. And the block pretty much does. That's what, that's what a lot of people don't get. So yeah, that's a good point. On the beach, yeah, when you go straight up on the beach, you pretty much get up as high as you normally do. But when you're doing an approach, you can't approach as quickly through the beach, through the sand. And so when you do the high sets outside or anything, you don't get up quite as high. It's very difficult. And guys that have that knack are like gold in the six-man. And Wes had it, man. We rode him for two years. And Skip Allen had it. I had it for a while. Uh, and, of course, nowadays there's guys on that magnum. Uh, 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 oh, shoot. Uh, e. E. Phenomenal. He's really great outside. And there's a lot of other guys. I don't know all their names. Well, I think it I the, like those Miracosta guys, I think Mike Cook's uh, what I always heard from people, but you'd know better than I because I think you were an assistant there, is that you yeah. swing for points. You don't. Uh, you don't dink stuff around. You know, you got a chance, you know, go balls to the wall and swing well, away. Yeah, if you, got, if you have a good set, yeah. But on the six-man, see, there's another thing. You don't need to do that. You don't want to swing in for points if it's not if you don't have a good set because it's just too easy to make a mistake uh, on the beach. Again, you're not getting up as high. The wind is blowing. Don't forget, the wind changes everything. Any guy at the six-man will tell you when you're on the north side, you set the left. And when you're on the south side, you set the right. Because the wind is blowing off the beach, off the ocean. And so anybody will tell you that that's played in there. That's where you want to set the ball. Because the ball drifts right into the pocket. And I'm telling you, if you're on the south side and you set the left and it's up in the air, it's got to be up in the air, you know, the left side. And the ball's moving around all over the place. <laughs> You're trying to, and when it comes down, it's moving away from you. It's impossible to hit that ball if it's windy at all. Did you it's see Aaron Wachfogel when he played one year back in the day? I heard he was a smaller kid from the South Bay. He could pound the shit out of the ball. He had one of the best arm swings I've ever seen. And for six one or six two, I I wasn't there for the one, but I heard he just had like an one of those epic six-man tournaments and just what, who did he play with i can't remember the name of the team oh. that he was on but i heard he was epic yeah. and i heard skip allen when uh skip the whip was said, on i just he, said skip allen i just said him he's one of the yeah great outside hitter he was on our team also i had him i had him that messias year yeah he, he was part of that team that i told you ob came down and said oh shit, you guys were like we a chance. Yeah, uh, that great team yeah, that should have won. Yeah, we had won. Bob Clem and myself and, uh, uh, and Ted Dodd and Mike Dodd and, uh, and somebody else, all these guys, and we couldn't lose. And Pat Boyer, I'm sorry, yeah. And uh, frickin' Eric Macias just, I, that's why it's just amazing. He had a Eric West Welch weekend. 
Eric Macias just beat me by beat all of us all by himself. It was incredible what he did match. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, did, Skip Allen was very good at it. Did you uh, play Gage. against guys like Imwali or Gage? Of in, uh, and Wally was pretty good. He was a center, uh, and he played in that tournament quite often. I played against yeah. I don't know. I, I, he, there would always be an Orange County team, probably Ed Becker, who actually I played with in 80 or 81. We had that unbelievable second place where we actually beat the best team that's ever played. We beat him a game. Um, anyway, M. Wally would be with the Orange County guys because Ed Becker was a very good six-man player. They're all from Corona Del Mar back then. Yeah, I think Bill Mar lived down in that area for uh, for a couple Who? of years. Mwali did for a yeah, little while. Yeah, that's where he's from, is Corona Del Mar, or Orange County somewhere, but I know he played at Corona Del Mar. That's where everybody played back then in the 70s type thing. Uh, there was this, the secondary beach at Corona Del Mar down in the Cove. It had three courts. It was really nice down there. And then the other courts were on a parking lot with sand, which was just unbelievably horrible. But the three down in were really nice. Uh, and uh, Mark McKenzie played down there. He set for uh, Orange County guys, Craig Thompson. And all those guys, I got on a team at the last minute. It's one of the few teams I didn't put together. And we got a second one year. It was 80 or 81. But but this team where all the freaking great guys played together, Karch and Sinjin, I think Dodd and Hovland were both on it. Randy was on it. I think Powers was on it. Some mix of those guys. I mean, that, that team's unbeatable. And we got him in the finals, and we had all these guys that Mike Cram, who's a really good player, and so am I. But it's not like altogether. Ricky Jeffs was this single A kid. He was about six six, and occasionally he was unbelievable. Ricky, if you ever see this, we'll never forget how you played that day. He was unstoppable. Craig Thompson, Ed Becker was playing on the uh, on the front row on the right side, and we beat them a game, and they were just they couldn't believe it. I told you this story last week, but I'll tell it again for this one. Again, this was 80-81, and it was two out of three in the finals, and, and Karch and all these guys, and we beat them the first game. And they were just kind of saying, okay, laughing, because they knew they could come back. And right. Beat and they did. In the second game, they did. Okay, but the third game, <laughs> and don't forget, this is a game to 11. In the th- and it's one game to one. So they were a little bit nervous because we did beat them the first game. We're ahead 7-5, game to 11. And we we serve and we dig up somebody. I think Cram dug a ball, but it wasn't like a, an easy dig. You know, it was a high flyer. And Thompson went over and bumped up some kind of half-ass thing over on the left side, which I had to run inside to get to. But I just got to it. I reached up and wristied it. And everybody froze because I didn't really hit it. I just wristied it. And I hit it to an in-between spot in the back row. And all those guys on, with Sinjin and Karch, they all just kind of looked at the other guy, who's going to get it? Nobody got it, and it came down <laughs> on the line. And I'm telling you, it was 8-5, it was our serve, and we were win that match, and I'm telling you we are going to win it. Even Karch had his head down. I've never seen him in my whole life, and I've seen Karch <laughs> a thousand times. I've never seen any time where Karch didn't think for sure he was going to win. And I'm telling you, right then, all those guys knew they were going to lose, except... Jeff Jordan drifts and barely touches the net. I told you I had to run in to get the hit. Yep. I barely got to it, and I drifted into the net. And of all people, Matt Gage is umpiring, and he saw it, and he called it. And so then <laughs> those guys who are completely done 
then the point gets taken away, plus they get the ball back, and so all their heads went right back up, and they're ready to go 7-5 with their ball, and they ended up coming back, beating us, I don't know what, 12-10, 11-9. Yeah, you can't leave the, as they say, a crack in the door open with guys no, like that because they're going to bust it down. Guys, no way. Good old Mac Gage, you know, he's like so sharp and analytical and just on stuff all the time. He's a he's a got a brilliant mind and he uh, he caught it. Yeah, Matt's a pretty sharp guy. Matt and I played together a couple times too. Um, Although, oh gosh, well anyway, we had a real close one, but didn't really do much, so we didn't play too long. We played against each other a lot, Gage and I. Actually, that's where I had a lot of success. I, although he beat me several times, I beat him several times, too. Those are some of my best wins. Von Hagen Gage we got at Marine Street in the Marine Open one year for fourth. That was a big deal for us in 76, oh, heck yeah. I think. I know Von yeah, Hagen I mean, really loved playing with Gage. Um, he was uh, such a, a strong player, so to get a, a win over... Uh, well, uh, at least in, during a game or what have you, um, that's pretty impressive to beat two of no, the all-time a, we greats. Beat, we, no, we beat them for fourth at Marine Street. Yeah, was, that's awesome. That was a big match, Leonard and I. Yeah, that was that was early. That was '76. That's when we were just getting good. Um, that was a big win for us. <clears throat> anyway, so much for the six man. I think. Uh, thank you for asking. That's. I yeah, I could. That, those stories yeah. need to be told because you were a part of them, either as a player when they were, you know, yeah. back in the day, I, and then also I, as a ref. So you've got a great perspective on it, and it really is a a remarkable uh, one of a kind event. I mean, I like you were talking about. I think the neatest thing I saw that first day I went there, besides all the hot women dressed up as Princess Leia, that gave me a shot, a Jello <laughs> shot, which was like, yeah, you know, I think I, I had know, dreams like that when I was everywhere. thirteen. But, and how big that, go ahead with your, go ahead. Yeah, and then there was this group of guys that were all wearing doctor scrubs, and they were yeah, awesome. Yeah. And then they yeah, had, like, the the IV hookups, but instead, in one, some had water and some had vodka. Yeah. And they were think, drinking right out of them, yeah. and I was like, yeah, this is the coolest thing ever. That was just to hide the booze. That's probably why they Yeah, did. yeah, and they had them, and they'd be dragging them through the sand, you know, and then and, yeah. and the guy it was like, you know, instead of like the IV hook on that, it was just like a like a hose, and then they'd be drinking it, you know. It was it was classic. Yeah, yeah. I was well, like, yeah, this is killer, and I couldn't believe how good these guys were. It was very humbling for me. I, I, I'm like, yeah. I might as well just take up underwater basket weaving now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because everyone there was better, including like the every uh, everyone. Period. But it's it's still just a really remarkable event. So yeah, thanks for sharing that, Jeff. That yeah, stuff's yeah, classic. I, I, I want to throw in because it's one. Of, I mean, it's a big deal to me, and I'm I'm at 48 years in a row. And this would have been 49 this year, and now obviously I've got to skip it. But it could be 49. That's why, if anybody knows whether Max Licker was in the tournament in 71 or two, I would like to let us know. Anyway, I think I can't say 71 because I'm not sure. I'm sure, uh, yeah, I mean. That's why it's 48 years. I'm sure someone will know, like in Wally or, um, you know, Gage or somebody around there. I don't know. We, you know, you gotta remember. See, we were we were just a little funky team at the time. Right. Nobody would have paid attention unless it was from the area here. Maybe uh, Bob Jackson might know because we played them. But anyway, just something to throw out there. So yeah. 
Um, there were a million. Uh, oh, the, the another outfit, Magnum. You know, they're known for the Hawaii, when when they were playing. They all had the Hawaiian shirt look. And then, oh, another thing about that before we leave is the friggin' music, which I hate, but most people like. But the guys, that, again, the the guy, the Miracosta boys are the ones really that started it, where they brought down the blaster. Um, and they were playing and, uh, like uh, Jim, Barry Manilow and Jim Neil Mar- Diamond. Jim Mariko <laughs> is the guy with the bullhorn for the for the Miracosta boys, and uh, they would bring down the big blaster. Then they figured out they figured out to bring down a generator. <laughs> They're the ones that started all this stuff, <laughs> and eventually, that one year, it got to the point. Jesus Christ, it's one year in the late 90s, I think. Uh, because everybody after the Miracosa boys figured out the generator, everybody else did. And when you have a generator, shit, man, you can bring down a PA system like with a rock band. <laughs> and I mean, you can just blow the place out, you know? Yeah. And there was like, but the thing was, there were like five different teams along with the the. The, the direct the tournament director you know they have music playing during the day and they have huge speakers set up for them but that's the only one that you usually hear loud but because of the generator thing by that third year or so there was about five teams that had a generator and huge speakers and I'm telling you that I was I was refereeing and I couldn't I couldn't think I mean there would be one <laughs> thing screaming in my right ear what some rap music screaming in my left ear and heavy metal coming from the front and something else from the back and I'm telling you I was I couldn't think straight after you time. thought you were at the, the front row of a Van Halen concert yeah, back in 77 <laughs> so that's about right so they outlawed the generators and Charlie had to I mean it was, I think that was Charlie that's about the time he passed I'm not sure if Charlie or Jay did that but but the outlaw, the generators, it was just unbelievable. I mean, nobody could, you could I mean, it was just killing people. Anyway, that was another thing, the whole thing with the blasters, and now it's, now it's pretty much, there's a few regular blasters and stuff, but the guys use the bullhorns on occasion, but it, it's, it's, it's an iffy thing because the guy that's using the bullhorn has to be reasonably, what's the word, uh, somewhat, thoughtful of the area around it because you can't sit there and scream on a bullhorn while the other team's handling the ball if if everybody starts doing that it's going to turn into a anyway jay jay keeps that stuff on jay uh safely keeps that under control pretty well yeah i i, I didn't i, either, either, I used course. to see charlie but i've recently gotten to know uh just jay just from facebook and he seems well, like a, a, a good guy and has carried the torch well for his, his dad. So it's good yeah, to know it's yeah. in good hand and keeps the tradition. Oh, Jay's fantastic. Of course, he's been working at that thing since he was like eight. Yeah, he's yeah, he's got a, he a lot of experience. On-the-job training is the saying goes, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, um... Let's, uh, I mean, you having grown up in the South Bay there and then learning the sport in college, you were probably at, at the beach and saw some great epic matches and plays. Do you want to touch on maybe what one of the greatest matches was that you can recall having witnessed you know, yeah, uh, as a I fan? I that. You know, I, there, are, there's really, there are a lot if I sit and think about it. But it's funny, you know, because a lot of people, you know, if you're talking volleyball, Somebody will bring up this match or that match, or, and then they'll say, "What do you mean? What's the, what's the greatest match you ever saw?" I mean, that's a pretty common 
thing to bring up. And so over the years, I, I've come and gone on that. But, you know, I, I cannot get out of my mind uh, probably, I don't know what year, maybe 72 maybe. But I'm telling you, no, it's a little later than that. Oh, wait, it's because Kirk Gilgore, it was the year that Kirk went to Italy and and hurt his neck and came back in a wheelchair. That so was, it had to have been 72, well, it, uh, well, I think go he did that in 74, maybe. Anyway, the year, it was the summer before he went to Italy and broke his neck. Okay. Which is, I think, 74, but whatever. It's close enough. 73, say. And it was the finals of the losers in Manhattan. Anybody that knows, I mean, you see some great finals sometimes. Uh, and we've seen some great double finals, of course. But to be honest, most of the time, the finals is a little underwhelming because the losers bracket team is too tired. But After a three-hour match, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so a lot of times the finals isn't the greatest, although when they are, they're the greatest. But anyways, this was, first of all, it was at Manhattan. There were like, I don't know, 10,000, whatever people. And the thing is, a lot of times when you get to the finals, a lot of people leave because the finals, especially at Manhattan, a lot of times didn't start till five or six, man. It, and we've all got stories of Manhattan finals in the dark. There have been a couple of those. Anyway, so the finals of the losers is usually around 3 o'clock, which is just like the prime part of the day. Everybody's still there. Everybody's 100%. So this match, again, I think it's about then, There's an, there was an, a team of older guys. Even They weren't old yet, but they were older. Uh, Mitch Malpy and John Gonzalez, and they were both Marine Street boys, which is great. Mitch Malpy was a war hero from Vietnam. Uh, he was injured. He had shrapnel in his legs. I mean, Mitch Malpy was just a stud. And he was an unbelievably good player and a great defensive player and setter. And so was John Gonzalez. He, uh, Gonzalez played the right. He left-hander. And neither one of them were too big. They were about 5'10". And, uh, you know, fairly strong guys. Uh, but John more wiry. Anyway... But these guys, those two guys, you know, they both won Opens, but not like a million of them, but they were both great players, and they were unbelievable defenders. And that's what makes the match. It's because who they were going against was Kirk Kilgore and Doug Dunlap. And Kil Kilgore, you know, he was like 6'5", and he'd just come into his own. He had finally shed the moniker of kind of being a, he had been a bit of a choke artist in his earlier days. Right. He was kind of known for it. And he'd finally gotten rid of that the year before, which, by the way, I was on his team that year, the Cattlemen's Indoors. And while our, our year was uh, kind of a failure, a third-place failure at the Nationals, because we were the best team in the year of the year all year. Anyway, Kilgore was just fantastic. He was first team all nationals and all that. And he was like one of the best players on the beach. And I'm telling you, Kilgore, 6'5", jumped out of the gym and a left-handed whip that you have never seen anything faster. Nobody has ever had a faster arm swing than Kilgore. And he hit the flippin' crap out of the ball every time. Dunlap was this guy that came out of nowhere. I have no idea where Doug Dunlap came from. Bogey is the guy that brought him into the game, 
and he played with Vogie. For oh a no, of that's years. another thing Vogie will take credit for now. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> sure Vogie did everything. <laughs> yeah, okay. he invented anyway. electricity, the toaster, <laughs> in the in a hot in the hot pockets. <laughs> that's about right. So Dunlap, Dunlap was like six six, this big blonde guy, and he was like he was pretty pretty strong. But he had his, we called him the paddle. He had a weird, I mean, everything he did was weird because he hadn't, he hadn't played like volleyball in high school or he'd been coached. Everything he did was kind of a little out of the And blue. didn't he wear knee pads or something like that too uh, out there or something? I don't remember that. I don't, not too many guys wear knee pads on the beach. But okay. anyway, maybe. But he had this big paddle hit. And again, he was tall. He's like six six, long arms. And he hit the ball deep, but he hit it. I don't know if anybody I've ever played hit any harder than Dunlap did. They hit more down, but Dunlap hit this three-quarter court ball that would hit you in between, you know, your dig. You couldn't bump it, and you couldn't overhand it, and so it just killed you. It hit you <laughs> right in the waist at about 80 miles an hour. I'm not, tell, I'm not kidding you. He would just annihilate you, and he hit the ball hard, too. So you've got Dunlap and Kilgore in, against Malby Gonzalez, the two of the strongest hitters that have ever played, against two of the greatest diggers that ever played. And that's the whole point. I have never, in a, and it's a loser's bracket game, so it's 1-15, to 15, and it was the peak of the day. There must have been 5,000 people around that court. It was unbelievable. And I'm telling you, I have never, you know, I can bring up Hooper. I can bring up uh, Lang. Everybody, you know, seeing Lang about 8 feet from the net on his knees, digging the ball open. I mean, there's even a picture of that. I've seen it at Sorrento where he's just digging a straight down ball, you know, and I mean, you think And he put it straight up perfectly with yeah, like yeah, no spin yeah, and Von Hagen would set him. Like at eight feet from the net, somebody's just burying the ball and he's getting it up and he's down on his knees in the sand, you know, that kind of thing. Malpy Gonzalez do that. I mean, they must have done that. Uh, and again, we're talking Kilgore Dunlap. These balls are just getting hammered. You I want mean, an open net and they're just standing there like sitting exactly, ducks, but... Nobody blocked back then. Occasionally, teams would block, but but if they had to be good, and Matt Gage was pretty good, and Jay Hanseth was pretty good. This is before you could reach over the net, though. Mm-hmm. You couldn't penetrate the net. It's a completely different type of blocking. So very few people blocked because it usually didn't get you anywhere. So anyway, Mitch and John are digging. They, I'm telling you, you know how you see a game to 15 if it's a big game, good game, you know, finals of a tournament. You maybe see two or three, maybe four or five, that balls that are hit ripped get dug. Yeah. Hooper used to do it a lot. Hooper used to come up with some unbelievable Hoop the scoop? You know? <laughs> Hoop the scoop. And these guys, they must have dug, I don't know, 20 at least. They're kept. Kilgore Dunlap would just hammer fucking Kilgore. He would he could hit a ball at the eight foot line, and Malfi's It's like they were magnets. I bet uh, Dunlap and Kilberger were just shaking their head like, you got to be effing kidding me. uh, A couple rallies went on, but usually rallies would go where, you know, you you kind of dig a ball, but it goes off to the side, so the partner bumps it up and you get it over. You bump it over. Or maybe you get a half swing on it, you know, and you get a, a deep rotator shot, you know. Or some guy does a cut shot, and you dive and get that up. And so it goes back and forth four, five, six times, right? And, you know, and that's a normal thing. But these things were, almost every ball was just a bomb. I mean, a freaking bomb. And Malcolm Gonzalez, 
they just kept digging the ball. I remember this one rally, there must have been seven or eight in a row where Kilgore Dunlap just kept hammering and they just Jeez. kept popping it up. I mean, it was just, I don't know. I always, And also, it went to, I don't know exactly, but it went over time. I think it was 1816. It was something that was really close. And uh, Kilgore Dunlap won it. But they lost in the finals, I'm pretty sure. But I'm telling you, I, I always remember that match. It's it's not one that's talked about a lot because it's not a final. Um, but if you were there, and, and I can I only imagine what that I, crowd was like. You know, people always well, said with... And Melby Gonzalez are the, are the local boys besides. So, and yeah, they had their... Manhattan Beach. There was a Manhattan Beach team against a bunch of Santa Monica evil beings, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, that's how it always was. You know, that's one of the things Sinjin, you know, he's always argued about, oh, Manhattan, man, we get cheated all the time because all those South Bay boys stick together. And the refs, <laughs> Chief Sitting Bull. always whining, huh? Yeah, I remember, uh, in, I think it was for Hermosa, wanted, uh, you know, a more objective ref, and he sat down. I think they call it the Chief Sitting Bull uh, until they made a, a referee change for it or something. Yeah, one thing you that's give true. him credit for, he always... Uh, stuck to his guns and fought for what uh, he believed in, uh, which not a lot of us you know, can say. But uh, Okay, I'll, I'll tell you a story about sending you. You're not going to believe me, but I swear on a stack of Bibles that this happened. I'm refereeing Sinjin and Randy, which was a nightmare in itself because they were whining every freaking point. They always <laughs> did. And they did have that thing about South Bay guys are going to cheat for them because there were some South Bay referees, me included. Okay? But I never cheated for nobody ever either way. Ever. And But they didn't know. They I have to admit, there were a couple that might have on occasion. I don't know that, but I've heard it. So maybe Sinjin had a point. But I didn't deserve to be in it. But he thought I did. Anyway, it was a game. doesn't matter. The game doesn't matter. The point is, Sinjin and Randy were playing somebody like maybe in the round before the quarter or something like Saturday after the first day. Saturday afternoon at Hermosa and it was something got tight in it there were a couple calls that, that just Sinjin went nuts and Sinjin you know we've all seen Sinjin hammering at referees before and Randy too although this was more Sinjin and he was okay. literally just freaking going off on me forever but you know we're you know that's why we're up there because we're able to stick with it and you, you know you don't feed into it and you listen to a certain amount and then you start bringing out the cards, and if they don't shut up, then they're going to lose points. And I handled it really well. Okay, but after, okay, so that was during the game. After the match, and Sinjin ended up, they ended up losing that thing, okay? After the match, I'm, I get down off the pole, and I'm walking, I start to walk towards the, uh, you know, the our tent. And Sinjin gets in front of me, and he is like six inches from my face, just, scream in every F word, every single piece of shit argument and insult, he could scream at me. And I sat there for about five, ten seconds and just let him have his say and then walked away. Okay? Okay, I'm walking away and there's this couple that's sitting next to the court, uh, maybe 22 years old, a couple, boy and girl, and they saw the whole thing. They had watched the whole match. They saw the whole thing with Sinjin. And they were standing there when I was walking by going to the tent after the whole charade with Sinjin. The girl looks at me and she says, in all honesty, she says, 
what's your name? And I said, Jeff. He says, Jeff, you are a god. <laughs> and I swear, in all seriousness, now, I'm not saying I'm a god, but I'm saying that they were so astounded that I was able to keep to keep it to I mean, it was pretty hard. I mean, thinking back, I wanted to unload on Sinjin as hard as I could. But anyway, I had one of my better moments, and I stayed under control because I'm sure everybody that ever hears this will say. You stayed, you stayed poised and polished, which is the J.J. way. But, you know, it was just amazing to have them say that to me. And I'm telling you, they literally were thinking of basically they were just so amazed. That was a really big moment. You taught them a good life lesson in life. Like when you get in an argument like that, just listen and walk away. Yeah, it was pretty tough. But anyway, it ended up helping me in the long run. Yeah, oh, I could stand to learn that a time or two myself at 47. I I had days where I didn't. Yeah, I think we all we all have, yeah. uh, except yeah. Bogey, because he does everything oh, every no, day Bogey's, perfectly. Bogey's perfect. Bogey's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, he did invent the jump serve. We have to give him that. <laughs> uh, well, other people say it was Art Diamond and uh, some other gentleman, no, too. That might work. Work. But Nobody, I, 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 Diamond, is that somebody older or something? Yeah, I, I think he is. Yeah. Uh, well, but, maybe he did, but the point is, you know, Bogey did it in tournaments, in open tournaments. I mean, you know, he... He did it when people saw it. Nothing against the other guy. Maybe he did, but <clears throat> Bogey's the one that, that brought attention to it. I have to give him. Although, his jump serves when he was using it wasn't anything even close to what the, all the guys developed in the 80s. Jesus. Guys like Fro and Ack, man, when they were on fire with those jump serves, you just might as well walk away. Yeah, you know, it, it was like getting shot at with a bazooka. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Yeah, when they came on the scene that year at Santa Cruz and uh, won that tournament, oh my God, that's all anybody was talking about. Yeah, those young lions. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, well, that would be my match that I can remember. I, I know it's not like one that a lot of people remember, but I, I I will never forget that. I just you know digging really when you dig when you think about beach volleyball now not not today's game because you hardly ever see a straight down hit. Everybody's hitting with the block all the time which in personally I think is one of the things that takes away from the game. But in the older days where guys are hitting and hitting hard all the time, the most exciting part of the game is that when you dig a hard hit, I mean, that's the hardest thing to do, man. It's hard to get their hand on the ball and pop it up nice and soft. Yeah, and, that's uh, interesting you say that. I remember, uh, you know, like um, a guy that's from the, the South Bay there, Chris Warshaw, made a comment that he came down to... Georgia, yeah. Boy, we call him Andy. I yeah. Him. This guy named He's Clark Wright came out from the East Coast and took some photos of like the 1980 Manhattan Beach Open, or it might have been Rosecrans or uh, Marine Street. I don't remember, but um, he th- this picture was great because it was Mengus um, in Gage in 1980 playing against a young Sinjin and Cart. So two of the old oh, guard wow. against the two, you know, young like teenage 20 year old upstarts. Um, wow. But anyway, um, 
I think Gage and in um, in Mengus won the match, but it was an epic match. And Hound Dog said uh, he uh, he Houndy, saw one of the Houndy. Yes, yeah, Houndy. I don't know him. Who the hell am I calling making up names okay. for people here? Okay. <laughs> I know of him, but I don't know uh, the nickname. But he he said anyway. He saw the literally the most impressive dig he ever saw that day that blew him away when he was young. In that um, on an open net, there's that great Robbie Hutas photo of um, Karch just crushing that ball straight down you know and it's going about to hit the two foot line he said gage was playing on the right side and karch hit a ball like that uh on the left side straight down and gage dug it like a pass so incredibly perfect straight up mingus set him perfect and gage cut that thing smooth as silk for a a point or a side out and and uh warshaw said that was the I was blown right, away by that by that dig right then and there, and those are the plays that you know you miss oh, seeing, yeah. and you saw a bunch of those. It sounds like with with Melpi and Gonzalez in that match against yeah, Kilgore. Like, like twenty five of them in the one game. I'm yeah. You. Although digging, I will admit. Well, actually, like another. I mean, Karch, especially when he was twenty, that was pretty young. Whatever he was. I mean, Karch hammered the ball as well as anybody ever has. I'm not taking anything. But I'm telling you, Kilgore, when Kilgore was playing in that Manhattan tournament, you'd be hard-pressed to get anybody that hit as hard <laughs> and as down as Kilgore did. Maybe Shamalis, but he, he, didn't, he didn't have the range. Shamalis always hit the ball straight in front. Kilgore put it both, both cross-court and line. And I'm telling you, that whip, anyway... Same, it's the same idea. But I tell you, I can see Gage in my mind doing it. Gage was a great hardball digger. Uh, he, he, you know, he dug uh, the hard hits as well as anybody did. That's why one of the things, reasons he did so well. Yeah, so that's I what. I see that happening. Yeah, I could see that. That yep. would have been something to behold. Jeez. I don't think I was there. I would remember that match, if, especially if it was in, it might have been at Marine Street. Yeah, I don't remember which beach exactly it was, whether it was yeah. Manhattan Marine or Rosecrans. I just know it was Manhattan, and, yeah. I, and I'll send, I'll email you the pictures. They're really awesome, and I, I give credit to Clark Wright. He was a pretty decent East Coast player that traveled out here and took some pictures or out to California back in the day, and um, he's got some really cool photos, and I know like like Mengus and uh, Gage appreciate it when I send those sent those oh, to I'm him sure. because they didn't have them. Um, they didn't have that play exactly in there, but Mengus and one and I um, against the young Lions Karch and and Sinjin and Gage uh, said that Mengus was just you know uh, was cutting balls like perfectly and sh- like those shots like just painting it like you're like are you kidding how do you like you, he'd hit it in the bottom of the far left corner right on the rope yeah. and you'd think okay you got lucky and he'd do it like time and time again and he just played like a surgeon and they were digging and uh, he and Gage just remembers Karch just running side on the sideline, and had that ball not been that precisely placed, Karch would have yeah. like got it up with one arm. But it was like yeah. just outside his finger. He said it was one of the most amazing shot making matches yeah. he had ever seen uh, done. But that was that was Mingus for you. Oh yeah, Mingus is as good as anybody. This concludes part one of our interview with Jeff Jordan. I want to thank Gigi Park Pryor for getting me in touch with Jeff. He was a fun interview, and there's more fun stuff to come with Part 2 and 3. As a reminder, please make sure to visit our website, godstoghost.com. 
our Facebook page, which is Gods to Ghost Volleyball, and our YouTube page, which is Gods to Ghost Volleyball. I'd also like to quickly give thanks to the musicians that we use for our podcast. The opening intro music is from the band Sponge. Song title is Rainin' off the album Rotting Pinata. Closing music, which you'll hear shortly, is from the band Magna Carta Cartel. Song title is That It's Already Too Late off the album Good Morning Restrained. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for part two.